It's Monday, March 9th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Thirty-three states now have cases of coronavirus. At least 21 dead and over 500 people infected in the U.S. The next thing to watch out for is the Grand Princess cruise ship that will dock in Oakland on Monday. Everyone on board will be taken to federally operated quarantine locations and tested for the virus. In the meantime, more events such as South by Southwest are being canceled or fears that COVID-19 can spread in large gatherings. We're also learning a little more about how the virus kills. If it moves into the lungs and the lower respiratory tract, the case can become more severe and it can progress from moderate to severe very quickly. My producer, Victor Wright, joins us for more. Next, the amount of forensic pathologists who are qualified to perform an autopsy of a body is very low relative to the caseloads that need to be worked. That is why sometimes you hear of extreme cases where bodies are stacked two to a gurney and put in refrigerator trailers to await further examination. It is very important that forensic pathologists can keep up with these caseloads because often they are on the front lines of spotting trends on why people are dying, such as the opioid crisis. Jordan Kisner, contributor to the New York Times, joins us for why America has an autopsy crisis. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Those are the most vulnerable, one, particularly elderly with underlying conditions, heart disease, chronic lung disease, diabetes, to do right now, not wait, but right now, to sort of take a look at things that are at high risk, crowded places, getting on airplanes, and absolutely don't get on a cruise ship. Joining me now is my producer, Victor Wright. Thanks for being here, Victor. Thank you. We're going to get some updates on the spread of the coronavirus, COVID-19. Right now, we have about 21 people dead in the United States, about 500 infected. Eight states have declared a state of emergency, and we have confirmed cases in about 33 states. Right now, the big story is this Grand Princess cruise ship that has at least 21 people with coronavirus. It's headed to the port of Oakland in California, and it's expected to dock on Monday. Governor Gavin Newsom had a press conference. He didn't say exactly when they're waiting for a specific window and they'll let everybody know at that time. But of those 21 people that are infected, 19 of those people are crew members and two are just passengers. But the number of infections on board could rise. There's about 3,500 people on board total. And this ship has been in limbo since Wednesday when officials learned that a California man who had traveled on that same ship last month later died of coronavirus. So maybe it was lingering on there or as you know, in this case, the 19 crew members, maybe it was one of those continuing to work there. So what's going to happen with all these people is that about 1,000 California residents from that ship will go into mandatory quarantine at Travis Air Force Base or Miramar Naval Air Station in California. And the rest, residents of other states, are going to go to other places. So they'll go to Joint Base San Antonio in Lackland, Texas, or they'll go to Dobbins Air Force Base in Georgia. So everybody has a plan on where they're going to go. It's going to take a while to get everybody out of there. And it seems really that a lot of the action, a lot of the spread is unfortunately happening on these cruise ships. Victor, tell us some of the other cruise ship stories that we're hearing. There's several other cruise ships that are linked to somebody later being diagnosed with coronavirus. So, for example, there was a person in his 80s who was on a Nile River cruise and he came back to the States and he started developing respiratory issues. So on Thursday, he was hospitalized. And luckily, like, thank God now on Sunday, we know that he is in stable condition. But yeah, he just went 
in his 80s on a Nile River cruise and then was diagnosed with coronavirus. The big one that I think everyone knows about now is the Diamond Princess cruise, which the Japanese government advisor now says was a flawed quarantine. So there were a handful of cases. They decided to quarantine the ship and then upwards of 700 people on that ship became infected with the coronavirus. And that's why with this case now, as soon as they get into the port of Oakland for this new ship that we're talking about, they're getting everybody out of there. They're getting them to these federally approved quarantine locations so that things don't spread. You're on a cruise ship. You're still in close quarters, regardless if you're in your own room or not. That's how this thing spread there. So what we're hearing right now, if this is coming from the Surgeon General Jerome Adams on one of the Sunday talk shows, he said, we're going from containment to mitigation. And that's an important thing. At first, when the numbers are low, containing, quarantining, we're trying to keep people separated, but they're finding out really quickly that they can't contain it. It continues to spread. So now we're going to mitigation. We're going to these things of where they're telling people, stop congregating, stop going into mass crowds. And that's what we heard this past week. They canceled South by Southwest. That was a huge thing. They said that this is the first time in 34 years that this event will not take place. That's huge. And before that, companies were already pulling out of South by Southwest even before the event itself shut down. That was the thing. I think they said Facebook, Intel, Twitter, TikTok all had pulled out of the conference. And one of the interesting things about it, too, there's a huge music festival in California named Coachella. I mean, everybody knows Coachella. There's worries that that might get canceled also. But in South by Southwest, it's a very specific thing because it happens all within the city, especially a lot of the music acts happen a local bar here, a local venue there, things like that. It's spread throughout the city. So if an outbreak happens there, that's pretty worrisome because we got to clean all the surfaces, everything like that. I think there's a big fear that any big event with lots of people gathered in a contained space, there's worry that anything like that would be shut down. And a lot of cruise ships and cruise liners are offering free refunds to people who had booked a cruise and now with this outbreak, they're allowing them to get their money back. Yeah, unfortunately, really, the cruise lines, airlines are going to start taking a big hit as people really start restricting their travel. And specifically, Dr. Anthony Fauci, he's the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He's on the coronavirus task force for the federal government. He said, if you're an individual with an underlying condition right now, you should distance yourself from crowds, avoid getting on a long plane trip, and above all, don't get on a cruise ship. It's just when people are really in close quarters, something can spread. And we've seen from the deaths that have been happening, the people that are most at risk have underlying health conditions. I just want to talk a little bit more briefly because we're starting to learn a little bit more about how the coronavirus, the COVID-19 kills somebody. And what researchers are saying that if it stays in the nose and the throat, upper respiratory type of thing, In the nose and throat, you'll develop really no more than a pretty bad cough, maybe a fever or something like that. But once it gets into the lungs, that's when problems happen and it can switch over really quickly. They say one in seven patients develop difficulty breathing and other severe complications while six people become critical. Then they die of failure of the respiratory and other vital systems, sometimes develop septic shock. Yeah, I mean, it's important to note that it starts in the nose area and once it starts going down like once it hits the lungs there's no way for your body to kind of stop that like i said when it's in your nose and throat it's basically flu-like symptoms if you get the right treatment at the right time you'll be fine but once it goes down to the lung area it's very hard to fight and like you said it's 
really affecting people with underlying conditions, people who are over the age of 60 who have things like diabetes, already cardiovascular issues, hypertension, stuff like that. It really affects those people. It's kind of what we talked about before, Victor, how when your immune system goes into overdrive to help kill the virus, it's also damaging healthy tissues. And if it gets into the lungs and everything, you might develop these pneumonia-like symptoms. That's when the virus is hitting hard. That's when your immune system is hitting hard. And unfortunately, doctors have said you get past this tipping point, everything's going downhill and you can't get back. There's that's, no way back. That's yeah. pretty scary right there. So, I mean, you know, continue every the really the only thing you can do, continue to wash your hands, do not touch your face. And like I said, people are starting to say, start avoiding big crowds now. Thank you, Victor. Thank you. So in those cases, when there's no forensic pathologist locally that either works for the coroner or works in the community, that's when a body that requires an autopsy will have to be outsourced or sometimes they will hire contract forensic pathologists to come in and and work on those cases. Joining us now is Jordan Kisner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, which is out this month and contributed to the New York Times. Jordan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're going to be talking about America's autopsy crisis. We're constantly hearing stories of, I think that a lot of them are in Ohio, reports that bodies are being stacked two to a gurney and piled in refrigerated trailers because of the backlog of autopsies that need to be done. Oftentimes this falls on forensic pathologists who have to do that work. And interestingly enough, 11 years ago, the National Research Council had issued a warning that there were fewer than 500 forensic pathologists in the United States that number can't even cover half of the annual deaths that require an autopsy. As I mentioned, we've kind of been hearing these stories around a lot, but you really don't realize how much of the work is done by these people, the forensic pathologists. Jordan, tell us how we got here. I think that the way that we got to the drastic shortage of forensic pathologists is an interesting story. Forensic pathologists are the public servants who are empowered by the state to conduct autopsies and perform examinations to determine the cause of death in unnatural deaths. So if you drowned, if you were in an accident, if you overdosed, if there was even just a mysterious cause of death where the cause of death isn't clear immediately, it's their job to determine on behalf of the county or state where you live what kills and to report that to various government bodies. And the thing about these forensic pathologists is that they are doctors. So they've gone to four years of medical school, passed their undergraduate work, then they've done a pathology residency, which is a specific kind of training. And then beyond the pathology residency, they've done a special extra few years of training in forensics. And so these are highly, highly qualified and trained physicians. And then they leave their training and enter a field where as public servants, because they are employed by their local or state government, they are paid much less than doctors in competing specialties are paid. So part of the problem that led to the shortage is just that these professionals are not compensated commensurately with their peers because their salaries are sort of tied to local and state budgets. Part of the interesting thing of this too is that depending on on the state or the county and all, not all people are qualified to do this. There's not that many forensic pathologists that we're saying. There's medical examiners, there's coroner's offices, And when a county or whatever has a coroner's office, they have to ship that body out to somewhere else so somebody else can actually do the autopsy. And a lot of times this is where the backups start occurring. 
It depends on where you live will determine whether or not you live in sort of a coroner state or district or one that's run by a medical examiner. Medical examiners have to be forensic pathologists and they're appointed, whereas coroners are elected locally and they do not necessarily have to be forensic pathologists or doctors at all. So in lots of places in the United States, coroners are simply maybe local doctors that are not pathologists or forensic pathologists or not necessarily doctors at all. So in those cases, when there's no forensic pathologist locally that either works for the coroner or works in the community, that's when a body that requires an autopsy will have to be outsourced, or sometimes they will hire contract forensic pathologists to come in and and work on those cases. And that is definitely a big source of backup. But even in major metropolitan areas like Los Angeles, like Chicago, like Cuyahoga County, which Cleveland is, which is where I did a lot of the reporting for this story. It's just that the rate of deaths that require autopsy have really dramatically increased in the last 10 years, particularly the last five because of the opioid epidemic. And so these um, very equipped offices that have a whole team of forensic pathologists are really overburdened because they're both taking on their own work and cases from neighboring counties and sometimes even neighboring states. Some of those chief medical examiners, as you mentioned, you mentioned Los Angeles. That was one that I remember. They resigned after such high caseloads. And a lot of times forensic pathologists, you know, they find the caseload so much that they'll change careers or retire early just because they can't deal with it. But Jordan, tell us why it's so important for them to do their job. A lot of it has to do with catching trends. You mentioned the opioid crisis and there's been other things that forensic pathologists have been able to ID as they start seeing these deaths, and then they can work with other departments and the DEA, et cetera, to kind of identify these trends of people are dying under similar circumstances, like I said, with opioids, things like that. Your mind might first leap to forensic pathologists and medical examiners as useful as expert witnesses in criminal cases, which they are frequently and which they do as a major part of their job, actually, as they spend a lot of time testifying in criminal trials because they are often the people who can best speak to whether or not it was the trajectory of the bullet in the body that caused the death or something else, for example. But something that is more frequently overlooked is their role as a public health official. So as you were saying, they've sort of been frontline actors in identifying negative trends in public health. They were among the first people to notice that there was an opioid epidemic coming very frequently a year or two before the general public knows about a rising rate of death from XYZ cause. It's this community that already knows because they're collecting the data from the ground and sending it to the CDC or sending it to various government bodies that then feed that data into the studies that are then handed to the journalists that then write the stories that we read 18 months later. So, for example, when I was in Cleveland, I was speaking to their chief medical examiner, Dr. Thomas Gilson, and this was maybe 18 or 20 months ago, and he was saying, you know, we've been seeing a really sharp rise in suicides among African-American teenagers, specifically teenage boys, and he said, but I haven't seen anybody writing about that yet. And lo and behold, about six weeks ago, maybe eight weeks ago, that story finally hit. So these people are really far out ahead in terms of understanding, being able to advise public health officials what we are at risk for and what can help keep our community safe. That's a tough position to be in. You know, if there's a lot of these backlogs going on, obviously they can't notice the trends as early or as quickly. And then, as you mentioned, just kind of how the trickle down effect from officials, then down to journalists who are writing the stories and all that, 
and finally down to the public when they finally realize there's an epidemic or there's something going on with let's just keep using the opioid crisis. I mean, it's too late by then. You know, everybody's all hooked on them already. And it's just tough to kind of get everything back in order. You mentioned you spent a lot of time in Cleveland with officials there. How does a normal day go for these forensic pathologists? How do they lay out their day when they have so many to go through? I'll speak specifically to the Cuyahoga County Medical Examiner's Office because I spent a lot of time there. And I think their schedule is more or less average. They come in in the morning and they do a staff meeting. And this is a little bit unusual. Dr. Gilson instituted a staff meeting where everyone on the team, so forensic pathologists, but also forensic toxicologists and the death investigators and the people who specialize in identifying John's and Jane Doe's, every department is represented in this meeting and they go through the files of all of the cases that they have coming in that day. So who came in last night? Is there anyone left over from yesterday? What does our day look like? And they all go over together, each case, the photographs from the case, what is known, and then they make plans for which investigators are going to follow up on which details, which forensic pathologists are going to perform which autopsies, and they all kind of coordinate to make sure that they're working in tandem throughout the day. And then typically the forensic pathologists do their autopsies in the morning as much as possible. And then for the rest of the day, they're working on the mountain of paperwork because it's not just the physical autopsy that completes a case. Then they have to send all that tissue sampling to be analyzed. And when the results come back, they have to analyze them and then type up their observations and type up a report. And so they usually have lots of reports going at the same time. They're communicating with families. They're working with local law enforcement. They're communicating with each other, cross-referencing on cases. And then they're, you know, also attempting to write academic papers and fully their research and keep up with the, the many other parts of their job. And so that's usually the rest of the day, I think. And then they go home and they do it again the next day. <laughs> so it seems that we have a shortage of, of these people. We have an increasing backlog of bodies that need to have autopsies performed on them. We talked about the money thing already, but what's being done to either increase their ranks or just help with the backlog? I think that at the moment... The community feels like it's in crisis and it's really calling for more help than it's receiving. Of course, the, the most important thing that they need are simply more graduating medical students to choose forensic pathology as a field. And so something that the offices that have time and resources available will do is create education programs and community outreach to simply inform the public and law enforcement and medical professionals and medical students that they're there and what their work is and how they work and why it's important. Another thing that is sort of being discussed is the creation of a federal office of death investigation. At the moment, there is no sort of landing place for this work in the federal government. There's no office that is designed to advocate for this line of work or even coordinate a national set of regulations around how it's performed. There is a National Association of Medical Examiners, but that's not tied to the federal government. So they're calling for that as well. And as always, what I heard from everyone I talked to is that they are constantly trying to negotiate for more money from their local state or local county, whatever their governing body is, because that's what's going to allow them to pay the salaries that attract professionals into this field. Jordan Kisner, contributor to the New York Times and author of the essay collection, Thin Places, which is out now. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.